My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of John Brookins. On December 20th, 1990, 26 year old John went to his friend Sheila Ginsburg's house to help her clean. Sheila was an older woman, 58, actually the mother of his on-and-off girlfriend, Sharon. When John arrived at the house, he says he found Sharon standing over her mother's dead body, stomping scissors into her chest. The crime scene was brutal, and John, a young black man standing over a dead white woman, panicked and fled the scene. Months later, he was arrested for the murder of Sheila Ginsburg. Despite an obvious alternate suspect, police misconduct, and ineffective counsel, John has been in prison in Pennsylvania for almost 30 years. But by the grace of God, as John would say, his wife Karen came into his life and found a new witness who was never questioned by police, who will turn the state's theory on its head. So why is John still in prison? And where is Sharon Ginsburg? We'll get to that after this. I came across John's case through Making an Exoneree. If you haven't heard of it, Making an Exoneree is an undergraduate class at Georgetown University where students reinvestigate alleged wrongful convictions and create documentaries and social media campaigns calling for these people's exoneration. The program was started by Mark Howard and his childhood friend, Marty Tankleff, who did 17 years in prison for the murder of his parents before being exonerated in 2007. And Marty Tankleff, side note, is actually my hometown exoneree. I grew up hearing stories about Marty as if he was the local boogeyman. Marty and I talk about this and much more on next week's episode. The program started in 2018 and instantly took off with the exoneration of Valentino Dixon that year, in large part thanks to new evidence discovered by these undergraduate students in the Making an Exoneree class. After 27 years in prison, 48-year-old Valentino Dixon walked out of Erie County Court a free man Wednesday and into the arms of his mom and daughter. You know, this is the greatest feeling in the world. It's indescribable. 
And we've been waiting 27 years for this moment. John's case was featured on Making an Exoneree in 2019. And I also got a personal reference to cover John's case from a friend who did time with John in SCI Greaterford, now SCI Phoenix in Pennsylvania. And John's wife, Karen, directly reached out. So it seems like all the signs were telling me to cover John's story, a harrowing one. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. And a heads up, the audio with John is really tough to hear. John and I had to jump through some pretty major hoops to get this conversation recorded. So please bear with me. John Brookins was born May 26, 1964, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. He grew up there in Bristol Township, which was and still is a rural community. If you know the M. Night Shyamalan movie Signs and all the aliens running through cornfields, well, that was filmed here. John was the eighth child of 12 kids, and they were all raised by his parents, Samuel and Floretta Brookins, in a traditional blue-collar working-class family. My father had a, a cleaning business, and, and plus he had uh, a business where he'd done everything from uh, building houses, leveling basements, mechanics, uh, uh, refurbishing cars. Uh, rebuilding cars, selling cars, anything that he, any job that he could get or a skill that he could teach us, that's what he would do. So he made good jobs and, and, and we, we was like his, uh, his workforce. It was like a football team. His dad was basically a jack-of-all-trades, as well as resourceful. He'd take the kids to their grandfather's farm a couple times a year to stock up on food. And then we would, um, uh, preserve everything, you know, uh, make jellies, jams, um, smoke, uh, meat, and everything. My mom would do everything. It was like the, the one shop, uh, family Robinson home. <laughs> Just doing everything. John's mom worked as a plastic technician. He said fixing machinery. And matter of fact, she used to bring me all my models home, like uh, model tanks, model planes, and trains, and tanks. And I would take him and put him on a fishing string and let him hang from the top of the ceiling. And John's mom could cook. Cook, she used to cook more, like she's cooking for for a whole football team. My mom would cook. <laughs> uh, you see every every big pot on the planet just on the oven just cooking. So she yeah. would always make sure that we had plenty of food to eat. And from both his parents, John learned a strong work ethic early. You know, because I started when I was like eight years old. My first job was just the peace office, was to go and dump all the uh, trash cans, the little uh, trash cans. John and his siblings were also raised in the Salvation Army Church, going to Boy Scouts there and teen camp. John's faith still plays a huge role in his life today. And it's from going to church that he may get a second chance at freedom. At 16, John left high school to continue working. He loved work. And everyone who knows John describes him the same. Kind, caring, compassionate, and spiritual. He was always a good citizen and person and had no record at all. Except one bizarre incident in 1988 when he was around 23. A friend asked John to get his other friend cocaine. John said no, but he'd go with him. 
When they met up with the guy who wanted the cocaine, it was passed through John as a middleman in the car. John says he only touched it for a second, but turns out it was a sting and John's friend set him up. John did two years on a work furlough program, which is when a prisoner is allowed to leave prison temporarily to work. And around the time right before this, John also met 26-year-old Sharon Ginsburg, and his life would change forever. John needed his roof fixed at this time and met a man who worked in roofing. When the man came over to look at John's roof, he saw John's garage was empty, and he told John his stepdaughter was getting kicked out of her house and needed a spot to put her stuff. So he asked John if she could put her stuff there. John, being the kind person that everyone describes him as, agreed. The man said he'd bring his stepdaughter over to meet John. One night, he shows up with Sharon Ginsburg. When he came over the house, both of them fell out of the car, drunk. That was my first impression. Sharon reportedly had severe drug and alcohol problems, particularly crack cocaine, and according to court documents, was known to be violent to her mother. Court records also say she was a sex worker. John and Sharon struck up an on-and-off-again relationship. He says he really wanted to help her get off drugs, and he was particularly fond of her 8-year-old son, Ricky. John says he often dated women whose kids had no father figure, so he was used to that role and even enjoyed it. But Ricky was different. He was actually in and out of foster care since he was three. Records say this is because Sharon hit Ricky with a frying pan in the back of the head and caused him to go blind in one eye. John really took a liking to Ricky and felt protective of him because he says Sharon was abusive and would even sometimes disappear for weeks when she was on a bender. So I would just take all the kids out and just do things, but just showing him that there, there's, a, there, there's a better life out there to just give it an extra care about the developing. John's love for Ricky is what connected him to Sheila, Sharon's mom. Sheila was 58 years old, living alone. John says Sheila loved Ricky and Ricky loved Sheila. And so John would often help her with Ricky as well as her own things around the house, driving her around and fixing stuff. On December 20th, 1990, Sheila asked John to help her clean the apartment. Her son, Barry, was coming to visit the next day. She was also planning a little celebration for the changes in life they were all going through. John had a new job in New York City and was planning to move to northern New Jersey. Sheila was talking about moving to Florida. Sharon was supposed to join that day too, but by the evening she had not arrived. So John agreed to take a friend to work around 5 p.m. and come right back. When he returned to the apartment, he could not have prepared for what he found. When he entered the apartment, he says he found Sharon Ginsburg standing over her mother, stomping scissors into her chest, screaming, the bitch needed to die. It was like, uh, it was, it was, it was like everything slowed down. It was like, everything was like a slow motion thing where it was like, look around, everything was like in a haze, uh, a fog and a shock and all. It's like, uh, It's really hard to put words to, but it was like everything was just moving in slow motion. 
it was like, what am I going to do? My mind is going 20,000 miles an hour. So that's why I picked up the phone, picked up the remote, and trying to turn the TV down. Do you remember what was on the TV? It, it, was, it was static, just snow. It was because it wasn't snow when I left, but it was snow when I came back. Did you try to check her? Well, as I pushed Sharon down, I checked her neck and, uh, and pressed aside her stomach. At this point, he said Sharon had already fled the scene. And in a panic, standing alone over a dead white woman, John Brookins, a black man with a criminal record, also fled the scene. It was just weeks since he had gotten home from prison. The murder was brutal. There was blunt force trauma, strangulation, and stabbing with the scissors. There was blood everywhere. Sheila's body was discovered the next day by her son, Barry, who was visiting from Florida. This is a case of an African-American man in a predominantly white community in 1990. This is Colin Miller. I'm the Associate Dean for Faculty Development at the University of South Carolina School of Law. And if you know your true crime podcasts, you also know Colin is the co-host of a teeny little podcast called Undisclosed with Rabia Chaudhary and Susan Simpson. And when I say teeny, I'm actually totally kidding. It is a huge podcast and you should absolutely listen. They recently investigated John's case in a four-part series. And his claim is, I tried to help and I was about to call 911 and I realized that Sharon, the daughter, had left and here I was alone, an African-American man with a murdered white woman. And if I called, the police were going to thought, I did it, and I was going to go down for it and ran away, and that's what led to this, what I believe to be an injustice for the past 30 years. I spoke to Colin to help break down what happened after the murder. The next night into the following morning, he goes to see Sharon and tries to get her to turn herself in and to confess, and in fact says over the next several weeks he's working on her and trying to get her to turn herself in. And she seems like she's possibly amenable to that and might, in fact, turn herself in. And it just never happens. The case stalls. And Sharon does a few interviews with police, but never mentions anything about John. She says she was at a bar the night of the murder. Then, a few months later, Sharon is picked up on drug charges. And that's when everything comes crumbling down on John. After Sharon is picked up on drug charges, she tells the police she heard John confessing to the murder of her mother to his friend a month earlier. John is picked up for questioning. At the station, he says detectives Rudy Erling and Robert Potts tried to coerce a written confession out of him. John had been drinking and took Xanax. He told them this. He was completely out of it. But they questioned him anyway. He says when he started to nod off, Detective Potts would slap him and yell to him, stay up, confess. At one point, he says Potts even put his hand over John's and tried to write the confession for him. None of this worked, and eventually they took him home. 
Days later, June 20th, 1991, exactly six months after the murder, John is arrested for killing Sheila Ginsburg. John went on trial a year after his arrest in a death penalty case. It was in front of an all-white jury for murdering a white woman. The prosecution eliminated the only two prospective black jurors out of 98. And if this makes you think of Ronnie Long from episode one, me too. Lead prosecutor Diane Gibbons says the motive was sex. They tried to push a kind of fatal attraction that he was fatally attracted to the mother, Sheila Ginsburg, despite a pretty big age difference. The basis for that was some poetry and letters he had written to her from prison, but that's just John. That's what he does. That's how he expresses himself. They tried to push a narrative of that Sharon and John had run up a phone bill on Sheila's account, but that wouldn't really be a motive for John to kill Sheila either. I asked John about this. But, but we never had any uh, sexual feelings, sexual connotations, or, or some type of I know that's tough to hear. And basically what he said is there was never anything sexual between him and Sheila, nor did he want anything sexual. John cannot figure out how they came up with this. I read the letters. There's not much to them unless you make something of signing off on one quote, your friend with love. I do care. Johnny Brookins. P.S. Thank you for being you. God bless. Like Colin said, that's just how John comes across as a caring, kind person. At trial, the prosecution also presented John's fingerprints on the remote and phone receiver, which, as you heard, he admitted to touching. Prosecutor Gibbons also mentioned one of the main points of guilt being 14, quote, Negroid hairs found at the scene. But FBI Special Agent Chester Blythe testified that the hairs were not suitable for comparison, so it was not clear whose they were. John's defense attorney, Mark Rickles, tried to keep the hairs out of trial because of the prejudicial nature of them. But the judge denied the request. And it should be noted, Sharon is mixed race. And again, we don't know whose hairs these were. And so that was really the evidentiary basis for the prosecution's case. And in terms of witnesses... There really weren't any witnesses against John. But the big dispute that arose at trial was about whether Sheila Ginsburg was killed around dusk on December 20th, 1990, or whether she was killed in the 11 o'clock hour or around midnight on that day. The medical examiner placed the time of death early or late evening, December 20th. The state called Sheila's neighbor, Margaret Albright, to refute John's story and push back the time John says the murder happened in the 5 o'clock hour when he was alibied at a friend's house. Her name was Margaret Albright, who lived in the same apartment complex as Sheila, but across the parking lot. And she didn't come forward at the time of the murder. She didn't come forward until well over a year later when the case was on the eve of trial. And she basically said she was watching the nightly news, the 11 o'clock news on the night of December 20th, and heard essentially 
a woman being attacked and saying, he's stabbing me, he's killing me. She said the news ended a half hour later and she went to bed and heard the same woman screaming, please, somebody help, he's killing me. And the prosecution would use that at trial to say, this is evidence that this was in fact Sheila Ginsburg. Again, it was John Brookens, a man who was fatally attacking her. The trial lasted four weeks. The jury only deliberated for two hours. And on July 24th, 1992, John was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was 26. Five years later, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And it's still to this day, it's still hard to uh, process through everything that I went through. Everything is just a uh, uh, real and natural nightmare. But John hasn't let prison hold him back. Fortunately, lifers can go to school and take classes in Pennsylvania. On his long list of accomplishments, John graduated from Penn State University College of Horticulture. He is a certified yoga and meditation instructor with over 2,500 hours of teaching yoga. He currently teaches yoga classes to fellow prisoners, and he developed a health and fitness class for the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections Activity Department and is the NAACP first chairman of the Health and Wellness Committee. And he is enrolled in the International Sports Science Program of California, getting a master's trainer degree. When he gets out, he plans to have his own fitness business. And he's got this whole program he's developed called the Omega Crush System. And it's on his website, johnbrookins.com. Now, I want to do a thing where uh, you can work out for 15, 20 minutes and, and, and burn as much calories as you would have for an hour. Wow. It sounds like I need that. <laughs> Absolutely, because everybody is rushed for time. So when you get out, will you um, be my trainer? Can I join this program? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Above all, John is a person of God, and that would be his salvation, because that is where he met Karen Pollard when they were both teenagers. John and I met his kids in church, and we were each other's first love, actually, and we we did things at the church together, and then uh, we hung out and rode bikes together and things like that. But that's how we met. As often happens with young love, the two broke up and lost touch. Years later, Karen happened to think back on the young man she fell in love with at church so long ago. I heard that he was in prison for life for killing someone, and I was just like, my first thought was like, oh my God. That's a mistake. Like, that'll get straightened out. Like, you know, I just, like everyone else, I just brushed it off and thought, oh, my God, they got that wrong. Like, there's no way that John would ever do something like that. Um, But I didn't dig in. I just just felt like, you know, it was going to work itself out. In 2016, one of John's sisters reached out to Karen. They were also friends as kids, and his sister told her they were hoping for commutation. Because, you know, he's in for life, and this is the way for him to come home. And we want to know if you wouldn't mind writing a letter to the governor about John. Karen agreed. She says it took her days to gather her thoughts and remember all those years ago. I had to dig down into my heart and my, my brain after so many years, but... 
I started to remember all these wonderful things about him and his family. And his mom was so funny. She had a great sense of humor. She says after she sent the letter, John's sister called back, thrilled. She was so happy Karen wrote such a nice letter. And I was like, you know, I love your brother. You know, like, your brother's a great guy. And I said, what happened? And she goes, Karen, I would rather he explain everything to you. And I said, okay. And then um, she said, you know, John wants to know if it's okay to to give him your number, if he can call you. And I said, sure, give him my number. And that was that. John and Karen rekindled their love and got married two years later in 2018. Before COVID, Karen would visit John weekly. The time flew by. I would get there at 8.30 in the morning and the visits were over at 3. And I would stay every minute that I could be with him. And we just, we draw energy off of each other. He is so strong and he is so powerful, spiritually powerful, um, peaceful. He's just an amazing, an amazing man. And he's taught me so much about patience and acceptance. And John is truly patient. Before he met Karen, his case wasn't going anywhere. He had been languishing for years. And Karen asked him what they could do. And he said, well, he said, it would be nice if people can hear about my story. But in order for you to tell my story, you have to read about me. And all I ever wanted anyone to do is just to read my transcripts or read my habeas corpus or read my paperwork. So Karen did. She read all of it. And it not only reinforced her belief in his innocence, but she was now on a mission to expose what she saw as injustices during the investigation and trial. From the beginning, the investigation was troubled. Two days in, lead detective Al Eastlack and Thomas Mills questioned Paul Kopman. He was a married man seeing Sharon on the side. He told the detectives Sharon had come to his house the night of the murder and changed clothes. Five or six days later, he called the police, telling them he found Sharon's bloody gloves under the passenger seat of his car. Eastlack and Mills collected the evidence and sent it to the DA's office. But it was never sent to the state police for DNA testing. Kotman followed up with the district attorney's office, but no one was available, so he left a message. He says he never heard back. So he followed up again and reached the lead prosecutor, Diane Gibbons. Kotman told her Sharon was violent and she'd once stabbed him and his wife. He said he knew Sharon had attacked her mother before and told her about the clothing change and bloody gloves. But nothing happened. And these gloves, the blood, could have been exculpatory evidence that was never even tested. There were also seven separate witnesses who testified at a pretrial hearing and the trial that Sharon had bragged about killing her mother. And yet, Prosecutor Gibbons and the detectives never appeared to seriously consider Sharon a suspect. And to be clear, I'm not accusing anyone of murder, but John is. And there were enough people saying that she confessed or knew she was violent. And so it's strange she was never seriously considered. 
Many people who knew Sharon wonder if that might be because Sharon had a personal and sexual relationship with Detective Al Eastlack. In a 2002 interview, Ricky's foster mom said she'd learned Eastlack and Sharon had become intimate and even moved away to Florida together. Could it be that's why Eastlack and fellow detectives Thomas Mills, Robert Potts, and Rudy Erling didn't seriously pursue Sharon? In a lawsuit John filed after his conviction, he alleged that Eastlack ran a prostitution ring and that Sharon was one of his sex workers and that he and other detectives tried to plant a gun on him when he was being arrested. John says he remembers during his interrogation, Detective Erling telling him that Eastlack did not want one of his girls going away from murder and that they threatened to hurt John's family if he did not keep quiet. Unfortunately, no one can ask Eastlack about these accusations anymore. He died in 2018. It should be noted, too, that John's public defender, Mark Rickles, had a conflict of interest when he was representing John. His second job was as the Bristol Township Police Department's solicitor lawyer. Nine of the detectives on John's case were directly working with Rickles. After reading all the documents and discovering all this information, Karen did what she could to help John, and in 2016 started a change.org petition demanding John's exoneration. It takes a lot of work, a lot of sleepless nights, you know, pounding away on social media, and that's pretty much what did it too, is, you know, just trying to get people to listen. And that small step is how she got the biggest break in John's case yet. I checked my inbox one day and on Facebook and in the messenger, and there was a message from her. It was from a woman named Chevelle Durant. She said something like, um, oh my God, can you please contact me? I have something that I need to say or I need to share. I just saw this about John Brookins, and she gave her phone number. So I called her. And she started to talk a little bit about it. Karen was hearing a new account from the night of Sheila's murder, one that corroborates John's version of events. And she said, you know, is there any way that we could talk face to face? So Karen went to visit her. She took me to the apartment. She said, I want to show you where I was. She told me that she was in the laundry room and she took me there and she showed me everything. And she explained it, how it happened. Sheila's apartment was next to the laundry room. And she heard these two girls, two women, a disturbance, fight. And she was curious, so she walked to the threshold of the laundry room into the hallway where Sheila's apartment was across. And she stood there and she heard, give me the effing money, give me the money. And the two women's voices, and then all of a sudden she said she heard this like sound. And she says, this sound I'll never forget, and it was a thump. And then there was silence. And she explained this feeling of, like, her hair went up on her back, like she got freaked out. So she ran out of the laundry room from the other end where she came in and upstairs to her apartment and left her clothes there. She was so freaked out. Now, this version actually makes more sense than Margaret Albright's, who says it happened around 11 p.m. and heard it from across the parking lot. First, the laundry room was next to Sheila's apartment. Chevelle could hear clearly. Chevelle also said it was around dusk, so the 5 p.m. hour. 
the medical examiner, also said that Sheila became unconscious very quickly. So it's unlikely the other witness, Margaret Albright, heard Sheila screaming again a half hour later after the news. This also fits with motive. Here's Colin again. It was well known at the time that they made frequent visits to Florida in the holiday season and that Sheila was holding back money from Sharon's welfare check and holding that money and that Sharon desperately wanted that money to buy drugs. And basically the theory of the case is that Sharon murdered her mother because she was holding this money back and Sharon, desperate for drugs, killed her for the money. Sheila's shirt was also pulled up, making the crime look like a sex crime. But people who know Sheila say she hid money in her bra because Sharon would always steal it. And if you're wondering why Chevelle never went to the police, Karen asked her exactly this. I asked her, I was like, you know, why didn't you tell the police? Or why and she said, Karen, I talked to my mom. I was by myself. I was very young with two small children. She said, my mom said, if the police come knocking on your door, you know, make sure you tell them what you heard. But if they don't, don't go offering any information, I don't want you involved. Like, her mother was worried about her. And Chevelle said the police never came. They say they can't visit the area or whatever, right? But they never knocked on her door. Or even left a card. That's why Chevelle is coming forward now, after seeing Karen's Change.org petition. Since then, in November 2018, Craig Cooley, a former attorney for the Innocence Project, took John's case. And a few months later in 2019, that's when making an exoneree, the Georgetown class that I mentioned earlier, profiled John's case. Mark and Marty and the students at at Georgetown have been phenomenal um, in in getting John's story out. It it definitely, definitely catapulted um, John's case. The Innocence Project has also joined Craig Cooley as co-counsel, and the case finally had momentum after almost 30 years. Last year, John's lawyer, Craig, went with a private investigator to try to find Sharon, who again moved to Florida very straightforward question why were you going to look for Sharon we wanted her DNA that's what we wanted at the time Craig was in the middle of petitioning the courts to turn over the evidence from the crime scene for DNA testing including the bloody gloves and the scissors I spoke with Craig about this venture he went down with his friend Paul Salino a well-known private investigator out of Illinois first they were looking for Barry Sharon's brother after a full day of searching for Barry, they had no luck. So now it's getting sort of later in the day. It's after dinner time. It's probably close to 9, 9.30. It's pretty late. It's dark out. So they moved to Sharon. So we tried the first address we had for Sharon, an apartment complex uh, in Fort Lauderdale. They park and head towards the address they have. We turn the corner, we make a left, and as we make a left, there's this woman standing there smoking a cigarette. And... She makes some sort of comment about me. She, like, whistles at me or something. Like, hey, baby. And I'm like, hey. And no, Paul and I keep walking. Uh, we walk past her, keep moving. I'm like, I get about 20 feet away. I'm like, Paul, I think that's her. So we go back to Sharon. And, you know, we start just, we introduce ourselves. And we explain who we are. <laughs> I'm like, here's my business card. 
I work for John Buchan. Paul works for me. We just, you know, we're just reinvestigating this case. And, and she was chatty. She was chatty. So we get into the nitty-gritty. And I, I wanted her to know that Paul and I know that we're onto her. So I give this reconstructive analysis of like, hey, this is what we think happened. We think the perpetrator went there to get the money that Sheila was hiding in her bra. Somehow this perpetrator knew that your mom kept money in the bra. And so I'm giving a play-by-play of how we think the murder occurred. And she locked eyes with me as when I started doing that. It was. It was like a stare down. I'm just like... And so I give her this whole narrative and she's locking eyes with me, not shedding a tear at all, as I'm describing how somebody's violently murdering her mother. Right? You think that would garner some sort of reaction. She literally just locked eyes with me because I know pretty sure what she was thinking that she knew that I was on her. Then they finally get to the point. They ask her for her DNA. I go to her and I said, look, you're Sheila's daughter. You were in the house. We just need to eliminate you. So mind providing a sample of your DNA. You ever see a black woman turn ghost white? Her hand started, and Paul was like behind me. He's like, right arm is behind my back. He's like tapping on the back, making sure I see his hand trembling. He's like, eventually says, I'll give you my DNA. I didn't kill my mother. I said, Sharon, I never said you killed your mother. I just need your DNA because, you know, one of the people, it's your mother. You've been to the apartment, and so I just need your DNA as a elimination sample. She's like, I know, but I didn't kill my mother. I'm like, Sharon, <laughs> I didn't say you killed your mother. At this point, it's around 10, 11 o'clock at night, and they tell her they'll come back in the morning. That late morning, we go back to Sharon, knock on the door, and it is nobody's there. So they're dodging us. And that more importantly, more importantly, you know, when Sharon was smoking a cigarette outside the night before, there was a, an ashtray of some sort with cigarette butts in it. And that was our backup plan. And like, if we don't get it, we'll just take the, we'll just take the cigarette butts. And, but when we came back the next day, it was gone. And that was it. They didn't get Sharon's DNA. So that, that whole interaction just, again, drives home what I know. And what everybody on Team Brooklyn knows is that Sharon Ginsburg murdered her mother. And to this day, it'll, again, it'll be 30 years this year. December 21st, 1990. It's going to be 30 years in two months that she's been out and living a life that John, unfortunately, has not been able to live because he's been in prison for something she did. Just a few weeks ago, the court denied Craig's DNA petition, and Craig says it was on two grounds. The first, timeliness. The prosecution said John had known about this evidence for decades and should have made the request sooner. And two, that even if Sharon's DNA did come up on some of the evidence, they say it's because it was a conspiracy and John was still in on it. They said that Sharon's DNA would not exonerate John. And I had questions about this because never once was Sharon mentioned as a suspect or brought up as a co-conspirator. Well, yeah, you hit nail on the head. There's no do- documents in, in 2,000 pages of trial transcripts 
in 30 years, 28 years of pleading, they have never, ever, ever suggested explicitly or implicitly that Sharon Ginsburg and John had something had worked in cahoots. It was always just John Brookings. They portrayed Sharon as this innocent victim who was being victimized twice because John murdered her mother and then John tried to blame it on her at trial. So it was, the theory was clear cut. It was John Brookings and only John Brookings, a single perpetrator murder. So Craig is appealing to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. He says on the timeliness, John didn't have any or proper representation until Craig. And then there's also no statute of limitations on DNA testing. And on the conspiracy theory... Can you change mid, I mean, post-conviction the narrative or the theory of the case if you're the district attorney's office? What the jurors who convicted you, had they known that Sharon Ginsburg DNA was all over this, would those jurors have acquitted you? Had the, the Commonwealth said the whole time, John Brookins, John Brookins, only John Brookins, and John had John presented DNA evidence that Sharon's all over this evidence. There's no doubt in my mind, nobody, no juror would convict him. John is now 55. His health is declining and his case is held up once again. 30 years in prison this December. But he doesn't give up hope for freedom. When John first went in, first, I want to say seven years, I believe, was the number seven. He suffered. He struggled. Um, and he woke up one morning and said, that's it. I, I, this place is going to kill me. I can't die. I've got to fight. And he did. And he started to fight for himself. I, there's not one day that I don't believe that John's coming home. We always say, we know you're coming home. We just don't know when and how. Mm-hmm. But, but we know that it's in, it's in God's plan. And when he does get out, it wouldn't be possible without a love that was born a lifetime ago. This is a true blessing from God. You know, I've been, I feel the most fortunate man on the planet to have such a beautiful woman, a lovely wife, the greatest woman on the planet. And I can't wait to be able for us to be able to not sleep together, but actually sleep together and just wake up each morning and just enjoy each other's company and just make plans, just do things together. Yeah. You know, you ain't got that person. You know, this ability you just want to curl up with the person and just share every thought and every emotion with, with, with this person. So, so Karen is always and forever be that that only that one and only person that I could ever imagine what to do this with. I reached out to the Bucks County prosecutor, DA Matt Weintraub, to find out why they will not release the DNA for testing. After a back and forth with the chief of appeals, Jill Graziano, she responded, quote, The extent of our pleadings then are not clear on this point. Let me plainly state that we are certain that John Brookins is guilty of the crime for which he committed, end quote. But I replied that if they assert in their appeal that it is possible a conspiracy occurred, as they say, if Sharon's DNA was on the evidence, then why not test it if someone else is at large? But she concluded that she stands by their pleadings and the rulings of the court. Needless to say, I am still confused as to why they wouldn't test the DNA if they assert there could be a potential conspiracy. 
However, John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, has recommended John for commutation. Diane Gibbons, who prosecuted the case, is now a Bucks County judge. If you want to help John, go to bringbrookinshome.com, where you can sign the change.org petition and donate to his legal defense team. I also urge you to write the Bucks County District Attorney and ask them to release the DNA for testing. You can also find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining our Patreon. It shows us how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonuses. Also, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessnetwork.com. 